Lesson 4 from the series The Book of Acts. This week's lesson for July 21 to 27, ready for teaching on July 28, is titled The First Church Leaders. Sabbath afternoon, July 21. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we open your word again this week. We come as sinners. We come as people looking to find what you want for us today and in the future. We thank you that Jesus came and lived and died and that we can read the story of what happened in the book of Acts as his name was glorified. We pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us as we open your word, as we see how people behaved, as we see how the church grew, and as we see how people were led. Be with us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's read that again, Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Many converts at Pentecost were Hellenistic Jews, that is, Jews from the Greco-Roman world, who now were living in Jerusalem. Despite being Jews, they were different from Judean Jews, the Hebrews mentioned in Acts chapter 6 verse 1. In many respects, the most visible difference being that usually they were not acquainted with Aramaic, the language then spoken in Judea. There were several other differences too, both cultural and religious, for having been born in foreign countries, they had no roots in Judean Jewish traditions, or at least their roots were not as deep as those of Judean Jews. They were presumably not so much attached to the temple ceremonies and to those aspects of the Mosaic law that were applicable only to the land of Israel. Also, for having spent most of their lives in Greco-Roman environment and having lived in close contact with Gentiles, they naturally would be more willing to understand the inclusive character of the Christian faith. In fact, it was many Hellenistic believers that God used to fulfil the command of bearing witness to the entire world. And to finish today, we're going to read Acts chapter 2 verse 5 and verses 9 to 11. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Sunday, July 22, The Appointment of the Seven Question, read Acts chapter 6 verse 1, What was the complaint of the Hellenistic believers? 
Acts 6, beginning at verse 1. Now in those days, when the numbers of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Ellen White writes in the Acts of the Apostles, page 88, The cause of complaint was an alleged neglect of the Greek widows in the daily distribution of assistance. Any inequality would have been contrary to the spirit of the gospel. Yet Satan had succeeded in arousing suspicion. Prompt measures now must be taken to remove all occasion for dissatisfaction, lest the enemy triumph in his effort to bring about a division among the believers. End of quote. The solution proposed by the apostles was that the Jews choose seven men from among themselves to serve tables, it said in Acts 6 verse 2, and the Greek word there is diakonio, while they would spend their time in prayer and the ministry diakonio in the word, Acts 6 verse 4. Since diakonio and diakonia belong to the same word group, the only real difference is between tables in verse 2 and word in verse 6. This, together with the adjective daily in verse 1, seems to point to the two main elements of the early church's daily life, teaching the word and fellowship, tables, the latter consisting of the communal meal, the Lord's Supper, and prayers, as we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 46. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as any one had need. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. And Acts chapter 5, verse 42, And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That is, as the authoritative trustees of Jesus' teachings, the apostles would occupy themselves mostly with the believers' doctrinal teaching and with prayer, while the seven would be in charge of the fellowship activities in the several house churches. Their duties, however, were not limited to those of deacons as this term is understood today. They were, in fact, the first congregation leaders of the church. Question, read Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through to 6. How were the seven chosen and commissioned to service? Acts 6, beginning at verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. The apostles were to be distinguished by moral, spiritual and practical qualities. 
They should have an honourable reputation and be filled with the spirit and wisdom. With the community's approval, the seven were selected and then commissioned through prayer and laying on of hands. The right seems to indicate public recognition and the bestowal of authority to work as deacons. So, to finish today, it's so easy to sow dissension in the ranks, isn't it? How can we do all in our God-given power to keep peace among us and to focus instead on mission? July 23, Stephen's Ministry After their appointment, the seven engaged not only in church ministry, but also in effective witnessing. The result was that the gospel continued to spread and the number of believers kept increasing, as it says in Acts 6 verse 7. Then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This growth started, of course, to bring opposition to the early church. The narrative then focuses on Stephen, a man of rare spiritual stature. Question, read Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 16. What do these verses teach us about Stephen and his faith and character? Also, what was Stephen preaching that so enraged his opponents? Beginning at verse 8 in Acts chapter 6. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrinians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses, and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. As a Hellenistic Jew, Stephen shared the gospel in the Hellenistic synagogues of Jerusalem. There were several such synagogues in the city. Acts 6 verse 9 probably refers to two of them, one of southern immigrants, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, and one of the northern immigrants, those from Cilicia and Asia. Jesus was no doubt the central issue of the debates, but the charges raised against Stephen indicate an understanding of his part of the gospel and its implications that perhaps surpassed that of the Judean believers. Stephen was accused of speaking blasphemies against Moses and God, that is, against the law and the temple. Even if he was misunderstood on some points, or his words were deliberately twisted, 
and false witnesses were induced to speak against him, the charges may not have been totally false, as in the case of Jesus himself. In Mark 14, verse 58, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without him without hands. And John 2, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Stephen's explicit condemnation of the Sanhedrin for the idolatrous veneration of the temple in Acts 7.48 reveals that he understood the deeper implications of the death of Jesus and where it would lead, at least in regard to the temple and its ceremonial services. Acts 7.48 reads, However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. In other words... While perhaps many Jewish believers of Judean origin were still too attached to the temple and other ceremonial practices and were finding it difficult to abandon them, Stephen and perhaps the other Hellenistic believers as well quickly understood that Jesus' death signified the end of the entire temple order. And we read about this in the following verses, Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And Acts 21, verses 17 to 24. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. And Galatians 5, 2-4 Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised... Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. And Hebrews five eleven to 14 Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. 
For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And so to finish the day. Why must we be careful not to be so locked into some of our cherished notions that we close out new light when it comes? Tuesday, July 24, before the Sanhedrin. Question. Read Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through to 53. What was Stephen saying to his accusers? Acts 7, beginning at verse 1. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession, and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them four hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him, and delivered him out of all his troubles, and gave him favour and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, seventy-five people. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another house arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. 
And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed, and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting, and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbour wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then, at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marvelled at the sight. As he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is what Moses, who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him." And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David who found favour before God, and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, 
The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the Just One, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels, and have not kept it. The charges raised against Stephen led to his arrest and trial by the Sanhedrin. According to Jewish tradition, the law and the temple services were two of the three pillars upon which the world rests, the last being good works. The mere insinuation that the Mosaic ceremonies had become outdated was truly considered an assault on that which was most sacred in Judaism, hence the charge of blasphemy in Acts chapter 6 verse 11. Stephen's response is the lengthiest speech in Acts, which by itself is an indication of its significance. Though at first sight it seems nothing more than a tedious recital of Israel's history, we should understand the speech in connection with the Old Testament covenant and the way the prophets used its structure when they stood up as religious reformers to call Israel back to its requirements. When that happened, they sometimes employed the Hebrew word rib, R-I, and it looks like a B, whose best translation is probably covenant lawsuit, to express the idea of God as taking legal action against his people because of their failure to keep the covenant. In Micah 6 verses 1 and 2, for example, rib occurs three times. That verse reads, Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the law has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Then, following the pattern of the Sinai Covenant in Exodus chapter 23 to Exodus chapter 23, Micah reminds the people of God's mighty works on their behalf in Micah 6 verses 3 to 5. O my people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. The stipulations and violence of the covenant in verses 6 to 12. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly, with your God. The Lord's voice cries to the city, Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod, who has appointed it. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the short measure that is an abomination? Shall I count pure those with the wicked scales, and with the bag of deceitful weights? For her rich men are full of violence, her inhabitants have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in 
their mouth. And finally, the curses for the violations in verses 13 through to 16. Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. And make sweet wine, but not drink wine. For the statutes of Omri are kept. All the works of Ahab's house are done, and you walk in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore you shall bear the reproach of my people. This is probably the background of Stephen's speech. When asked to explain his actions, he made no effort to refute the charges nor to defend his faith. Instead, he raised his voice in the same way the ancient prophets did when they brought God's rib against Israel. His long review of God's past relationship with Israel was intended to illustrate their ingratitude and disobedience. Indeed, by Acts 7, verses 51 to 53, Stephen is no longer the defendant, but God's prophetic attorney presenting God's covenant lawsuit against these leaders. If their fathers were guilty of slaying the prophets, they were even more so. The charge from our fathers, in verses 11, 19, 38, 44 and 45 of chapter 7, to your fathers, in Acts seven fifty-one, is significant. Stephen broke his solidarity with his people and took a definite stand for Jesus. The cost would be enormous, yet his words reveal no fear nor regret. And so to finish today, when was the last time you needed to take a firm and uncompromising stand for Jesus? Did you, or did you waffle instead? If the latter, what needs to change? Wednesday, July 25. Jesus in the Heavenly Court. Since by definition a prophet, in Hebrew Nabi, is someone who speaks for God, Stephen became a prophet the very moment he brought God's rib against Israel. His prophetic ministry, however, was rather short. Question. Read Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56. What was the meaning of Stephen's vision? Act 7, beginning at verse 55, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In the book Acts of the Apostles, page 100, we read, When Stephen reached this point, there was a tumult among the people. When he connected Christ with the prophecies and spoke as he did of the temple, the priest, pretending to be horror-stricken, rent his robe. To Stephen, this act was a signal that his voice would soon be silenced forever. He saw the resistance that met his words, and knew that he was giving his last testimony. 
although in the midst of his sermon he abruptly concluded it. End of quote. While Stephen stood before the Jewish leaders discharging God's case against them, Jesus was standing in the heavenly court, that is, in the heavenly sanctuary next to the Father, an indication that the judgment on earth was but an expression of the real judgment that would take place in heaven. God would judge the false teachers and leaders in Israel. This explains why the call to repentance a common feature in the previous speeches in Acts, chapter 2, verse 38, 3, verse 19, and 5, verse 31, is missing here. We'll look at those texts, Acts two thirty-eight. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And Acts 5, verse 31, Him God has exalted to his right hand to be Prince and Saviour, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Israel's theocracy was coming to an end, meaning that the world's salvation would no longer be mediated through national Israel as promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 and chapter 18 verse 18 and chapter 22 verse 18, but through the followers of Jesus, Jew and Gentile, who were now expected to leave Jerusalem and witness to the world, as we read in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And that reads, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Question. Read Acts chapter 7, verses 57 through to 8, verses 1 and 2. How does Luke report Stephen's death? Acts 7, beginning at verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopping their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Leviticus 24.14 reads, Take outside the camp him who has cursed. Then let all who hear him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Stoning was the penalty for blasphemy, though it is not clear whether Stephen was sentenced to death or lynched by a crowd of fanatics. At any rate, he was the first recorded believer in Jesus to be killed because of his faith. That the witnesses laid their garments at Saul's feet suggests he was the leader of Stephen's opponents. Yet, when Stephen prayed for his executioners, he prayed for Saul as well. 
Only a person with a superior character and unwavering faith could do such a thing, a powerful manifestation of his faith and the reality of Christ in his life. Thursday, July 26, The Spread of the Gospel The triumph over Stephen ignited a massive persecution against the believers in Jerusalem, no doubt instigated by the same group of opponents. The leader of the group was Saul, who caused no small damage to the church, as we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And also in Acts 26.10, This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. The persecution, however, was turned to good effect. Indeed, Scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, the believers went about preaching the gospel. The command to witness in those areas was then fulfilled. Acts 1 verse 8 brings us the command, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Question Read Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through to 25. What lessons are revealed in this account? Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him, because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ... Both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet... He had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that any one on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit." 
But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. The Samaritans were half-Israelites, even from the religious standpoint. They were monotheists who accepted the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, practiced circumcision, and expected the Messiah. To the Jews, however, Samaritan religion was corrupted, which means the Samaritans had no share whatsoever in the covenant mercies of Israel. The unexpected conversion of Samaritans astounded the church in Jerusalem, so the apostles sent out Peter and John to assess the situation. God's withholding the Spirit until the coming of Peter and John was probably meant to convince the apostles that the Samaritans were to be accepted as full members of the community of faith. Acts chapter 8 verses 14 and 17 we've just read. But let's have a look at Acts chapter 11 verses 1 through to 18. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. An object descended like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you the words by which you and all your household will be saved. And, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, 
then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. It didn't stop there. However, in Acts 8, 26-39, we have the story of Philip and the eunuch, the Ethiopian, who, after a Bible study, requested baptism. Reading Acts chapter 8, verses 26-39, to 39, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Peter ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Then, it said in verse 38, both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. First, there were the Samaritans, then the Ethiopian, a foreigner who had come to Jerusalem to worship and was now on his way home. The gospel was crossing the borders of Israel and reaching the world, as predicted. All this, though, was just the beginning, as these early Jewish believers would soon travel all over the known world and preach the great news of the death of Jesus, who paid the penalty for their sins and offers everyone everywhere the hope of salvation. And so to finish today, Peter told Simon that he was poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity in verse 23. What was the solution for his problem and for anyone who might be in a similar situation? Friday, July 27. From the book Acts of the Apostles, page 105, we read, The persecution that came upon the church in Jerusalem resulted in giving a great impetus to the work of the gospel. 
Success had attended the ministry of the word in that place, and there was danger that the disciples would linger there too long, unmindful of the Saviour's commission to go to all the world. Forgetting that strength to resist evil is best gained by aggressive service, they began to think that they had no work so important as that of shielding the church in Jerusalem from the attacks of the enemy. Instead of educating the new converts to carry the gospel to those who had not heard it, they were in danger of taking a course that would lead all to be satisfied with what had been accomplished. To scatter his representatives abroad, where they could work for others, God permitted persecution to come upon them. Driven from Jerusalem, the believers went everywhere, preaching the word. End of quote. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. Actually, there are four. Number one, read carefully the Ellen White quote we've just read about the dangers the early church faced in regard to being satisfied with themselves and what was accomplished through them. First, it means that, contrary to popular notions, many Jews did indeed accept Jesus as the Messiah. But even more important, what warning should we as a people take away from this today? How can we be sure that we aren't getting too caught up in protecting what we already have, as opposed to doing what we really should be doing, reaching out to the world? Two, by the time of the Apostles, the relations between Jews and Samaritans were marked by centuries of fierce hostilities. What can we learn from the fact that Philip, likely a Jew, bore witness of Jesus in Samaria? Even as Seventh-day Adventists, we are not immune to cultural and ethnic biases. What should the cross teach us about how we are all the same before God? What, too, should the universality of Christ's death teach us about the infinite value of every human being? 3. How did Philip approach the Ethiopian? Well, let's read that in Acts chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can we be more open to opportunities to share the gospel with others? And for what have we learned from Acts chapter 6, 7 and 8 that might help us to fulfill the church mission more effectively? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Converting a Girlfriend and it's by Andrew McChesney of Adventist Mission. Yamiji Hiroshi, a 25-year-old pastor's son, was deeply in love. There was a problem. His girlfriend, Sakiko, wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist. Hiroshi met Sakiko at an Adventist nursing school outside Japan's capital, Tokyo. 
After that, they worked together at the Adventist Medical Center on the Japanese island of Okinawa. It was there that they started dating. Hiroshi tried to convince Sakiko to become an Adventist. He invited her to church every Sabbath. He asked the pastor to give her Bible studies. He praised the truthfulness of the Bible and the virtue of becoming a Christian. But she was not listening to becoming a Christian, Hiroshi said. She emphatically told me, I will never become a Christian. Hiroshi gave up. He realised that he could not convince Sakiko to accept Christ and that maybe they should break up. But I still liked her, he said. A passage sprang to mind from Ellen White's Messages to Young People, a book that he had read thoroughly as a teenager at an Adventist high school. The passage says, on page 460, If men and women are in the habit of praying twice a day before they contemplate marriage, they should pray four times a day when such a step is anticipated. Hiroshi packed his Bible and an Ellen White book and retreated up a nearby mountain for three days of prayer and fasting. I asked God, what should I do? He said. I read and kept a daily prayer journal. After the fast, Hiroshi accepted a job at a nursing home far away on the Japanese mainland. He reckoned that the distance would destroy or strengthen the relationship, and he prayed that the outcome would align with God's will. The distance was difficult for him. I couldn't be with her, take her to church or give her Bible studies, he said. I couldn't do anything but pray. I prayed a lot. It was then that God intervened, he said. In just a few weeks, Sakiko announced that she wanted to be baptised. Her heart had been converted fully, he said. Sakiko was baptised, and the couple later got married. Hiroshi, now 56, has never forgotten Sakiko's conversion story, and it has become the basis for his work as a leader of the Adventist Church in Japan. His positions include Adventist Mission Director, Health Ministries Director and Assistant to the President for Evangelism. And there's a lovely photo of both Sakiko and Hiroshi right here. He says, As a pastor, I give Bible studies, I preach and I love people, but that's all I can do. He's a father of five. To change people's heart, to accept Jesus, is God's work. That's God's business he says. And I trust that you've enjoyed this week's lessons. I just must apologise for the very heavy rain that occurred during the recording of one or two days of the lessons this week. Uh, but I'm really enjoying the rain because we really needed it where I live. God bless you and may this Sabbath be a blessed Sabbath for you, your family and those you associate with.